0: Hey, what's up, everybody? Welcome to another episode of the Retro Time Podcast. I'm Jeremy. And I'm Derek. Derek, it has been a minute, man. Ooh. It's been a little bit, but, you know, we've had stuff. Like I said, man, it's summer. Well, I guess it's technically it's technically still summer, right?
1: I think today's the first day of fall, so we're technically... Is it really? Yeah, all right, well, so. there you go. Makes Read sense that, that
0: we're getting back to it. <laughs> but uh, I was out, you were out, I was sick, you were sick. Um, not COVID, though. We didn't get COVID, but that's, you know... Everybody's back in school. We got the little germs floating around and mm-hmm. everything now, the stuff we used to get before COVID. It's crazy, man. We actually, it's funny because um, my kids, you know, were not sick for a year. Like, they didn't have a cold. <laughs> they didn't have, like, infections or anything like that, I guess, from not being at school for the longest time and wearing masks and everything and, and staying home. We were all, like, in our own little bubble. And now, now everything's back and it's got... The, the noses have opened up like faucets around here, Derek. Kind of me? Gross.
1: I don't know if I've ever felt as sick as I felt in the past few days. I thought that I thought it would never end. And the and I know it was just a cold. I know that. Yeah. But these rust belt colds, man,
0: these Midwest <laughs> <Rust>
1: colds, <laughs> they hit different. That's all that's.
0: Yeah. I know. My allergies too. I think it's just moving up here from a completely different part of the country. Could be. My allergy's been nuts. Anyway, so we're back. So uh, that's it. We're back. It's not coughing, sneezing, kids, boogers, things like that. It's kind of gross. If you don't have kids, you have no idea what we're talking about. If you do, you know exactly what we're talking about. Um, keep us in your thoughts and prayers. Um, so Derek, I recently posted uh, a page on our website with all of, I'm calling them five-star review jams that you've been writing. So we've got a catalog now of all of them. And so if you're listening out there and you want your very own song, take a peep at uh, retrotimepodcast.com slash reviews. And uh, you can get your own um, your own song. All you got to do is write a five-star review, not just click the five-star. Because if you do that, we can't see who did it. But if you leave a five-star review, you write a little thing, you know, hey, this is the this, the two smartest men in software, something, you know, clever like that. Um, you don't have to plagiarize that. You can if you want, but you don't have to. Take a screenshot. Let us know. Shoot us an email at hello at retrotimepodcast.com. Mr. Derek Siebert will get you in the backlog, um, and, and you'll have your very own five-star review jam. Roll down the windows, crank it up real loud, and tell all your buddies how awesome you are that you have your own song. Most people Either. probably don't.
1: Be the hero we know you can be.
0: (laughs) So check that out. We'd really appreciate it. Um, And if you want to just help us out, leave a five-star review. Um, You don't have to actually write something, but it helps. Uh, Anyway, buy some stickers, all that stuff. You know the drill. So that's that. All right, back to it. So, Derek, it's been a few weeks, man, and we are back with another episode. I'm so happy to have uh, Derek time. What did you call it? Boy time? Is it boy Boy talk? Boy (laughs) talk. Boy talk. (laughs) Boy talk. So we have an interesting topic today. Um, I came across this article last week um, talking about how software engineering is a loser's game. And this article uh, talks about the difference between a winner's game and a loser's game. Uh, It's uh, an observation that was originally made by this guy named Simon Ramo in 1973, and he noticed the difference between how games are won in amateur tennis games versus professional tennis games. Hmm. And what he found was that winners, winner games, you know, professionals, they're really good at their at their craft, they're really good at at the sport. They win the games for themselves. But in an amateur game, the winners generally win because the losers screwed up a bunch. So it it wasn't because you were really good at at your, you know, playing tennis even in an amateur game generally speaking. It was that the other person screwed up less or more than you did. So (laughs) you screwed up less than the other person. Whereas in the winner's games, um, you uh, tend to outplay the other person, outperform. Um, So that's the difference between a winner and a loser game. So this article talks about, and we'll link to it in the show notes, a, a guy named Tyler Hawkins. So he talks about how software engineering is a loser's game, meaning we tend to cause our own mistakes. And we tend to introduce bugs because of our own mistakes, not because anything outplayed us, but we underplayed, I guess, ourselves. And I would take that a step further to say not just software engineering. I think the software development just process in general, the software development process being product managers, stakeholders, UX designers, obviously software engineers, can introduce all these issues, and we do it to ourselves. Mm. You know, And I think a lot of it goes back to a lot of things we've always talked about, the running themes, communication, uh, things like that, that we always talk about relationships. Um, and so that's an interesting topic. That's what I want to talk about today, Derek. The software is a loser's game. Fascinating topic, Jeremy. Fascinating. Thank you. Don't thank me. Thank Google. Google feed. It popped up in my Google feed. That's how oh, I found it. Isn't that sweet? Yeah.
1: It's, it's a really fascinating concept when you think about the idea of professionalism
0: versus amateurism
1: in the way we work.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So this this article talks a lot about unforced errors. I'm going to list some from the article, then I'm going to talk a little bit about some that I've found from the UX side because this article, again, is talking specifically about software engineers. But I think you know UX, product management, can certainly have their own unforced errors. A couple of things Tyler talks about in the is not understanding the problem before trying to code a solution, not understanding the tools or the programming languages that we use, Um, You've talked about that in the past, you know, committing to a freelance project where you had no idea about the software to build those PDFs that time, remember? I didn't do it. Um, Having having to learn. Um, Not carefully reviewing our own code uh, before asking for a review. Not manually testing our own code before asking for a code review. Uh, Not writing unit tests. Not following uh, standards, agreed upon standards. So those are some software unforced errors. UX side, um, clearly not talking to users. Not getting user feedback, mm. not validating early and often, um, you know, not doing usability studies, not going to where the users are, and you know, doing observational ethnographic research type things, from the product management side, forcing uh, estimates just because you want estimates, right? Um, not, not, not. Um, not giving your team enough time to do the work before you start asking them to estimate the next thing so that you can report that back up the chain for some reason, you know, things like that. I'm um, sure if we had a product manager on, they'd probably list a few more. So those are some ideas, you know, I, it's just, it's funny cause I'm looking at this and, and I'm thinking to myself, yeah, these are, these are totally solvable things. We do this to ourselves. You know, it's funny. The, the topics, the, uh, those different examples
1: are all in our industry debatable things. Should I write unit tests? Okay. Ah, it depends. Wait, what yeah, do you mean? Okay. Well, I I, uh, I sometimes write them, sometimes don't. Should I do code reviews? Well, I'm pretty sure I know how it works. Like I'm an expert, mm-hmm. so I just I don't need code review. Like some people really do feel that way, and it makes me think about like real professions, <laughs> more or less. Yeah. Like if if you don't consider our amateurish techniques, a uh, real profession. Maybe it's the nature in which uh, software has evolved over time in large organizations just feels that way. You know how the uh, feels more amateurish maybe. But when you look at like a profession like the medical profession, right? Imagine this scenario. You're going into <laughs> surgery. Doctor goes to the bathroom, doesn't wash his hands. Goes in, doesn't wear a mask. Doesn't clean yeah. his tools. Like, you know, doesn't record the Surgery ends up operating on your leg when it should have been your heart,
0: or even you know? worse, Google's how to do it while he's doing it in yeah. the middle. <laughs> that's oh <my> <laughs> so kind of exactly yes. like what we do, right? Yeah, right. Yeah, Google's the whole yeah. process. Submitting a Stack Overflow while he's performing at yeah. his scalp in his hand. I'm about yeah. to do this. I Doc can't do this. Out. <laughs> <Doc overflow. laughs>
1: so that you know, when you think about how silly all that sounds, and then you think about how not silly not doing some of those things we just talked about sounds mm-hmm. for our industry to some folks it's kind of interesting because that means that there aren't these agreed upon standards as to how we do our work which makes it hard to be a professional yeah.
0: right yeah well that that goes back to a lot of the like what I what I'm thinking about when I think of amateur versus professional you know a lot of people New to the the software industry, be there, whether that's UX design or software engineer, are going through boot camps, mm-hmm. um, they haven't gone through the four year program. And, and you know, for me, I I didn't. I mean, I taught myself pretty much everything I know about design. I've never gone through a you know an official quote unquote UX bachelor's program or anything like that. Um, so there's a lot of people like that. And, you know, it brings up to me what what I think about with this is just this debate about certifications and whether or not certifications are valid and, you know, should we have software or UX professional um, certifications that, you know, show this person, just like a doctor, has gone through the training to know to always wash your hands and always do this and always do those other things that you said so that they, you know, we, we know that when we go and hire a doctor, we trust that they know what they're doing. And often when we hire a UX designer or a software engineer, we are going off of whatever they told us in an interview <laughs> because there is real no real way to prove that this person knows what they're doing without checking references, maybe, or you know, trusting their their words and, and, and that's it, you know. It's interesting when you think about the
1: standards bodies that are in place for software. It's it could because there are some. There's the ACM. Mm-hmm. There's the, you know, the um, World Wide Web Consortium. Right. Yep. So there are a number of standards bodies. And what they put together are what I've heard are called de jure standards. So these these okay. are standards that are agreed on by industry experts and folks who operate within these bodies. A lot of times it's a board of folks who are from different companies. And so they can kind of all agree that, you know, we need port 80 to be the default port for HTTP. Okay. Mm -hmm. Everybody cool with that? Okay. Here's the problem is that we have gaps in where we have these de jure standards. Do we have de jure standards for how we do automated builds and deployments? Do we have like standards for how we do code reviews? No, those are like standards that are open sourced or, or, you know, like different for every different group. We just have like people we follow who we think were uh doing it the right way. People's yeah. books we've read. That's like how medicine was before we had a, you know, a standards yeah. medical board and all this stuff. You know, we were just listening to different apothecaries about, you know, if you put the <laughs> blue and the green together, that'll kill the you. Traveling uh, yeah.
0: traveling guy in it with his wagon. Yeah, yeah,
1: so. yeah, yeah. I trust him because he didn't kill me, you know? He's dragon stuff. His medicine didn't kill me. So it's it's uh it's interesting how uh Swiss cheesed our, our standards are in this industry.
0: Mm-hmm. So, I guess like you know, for me, I, the the big takeaway from this is constant validation, understanding what went wrong, making sure the next time that we do the unit tests and there's no bugs, or you know, we have extra QA step or something, or we we go and we talk to real users to make sure that the users are actually need this thing or don't need this thing or want this thing or not. Um, you know, validating constantly and then constantly changing your process to fix it so that next time it doesn't happen again.
1: Yeah, that's a good point. You know, it's uh, the steps we take to do the things we do for a lot of groups are kind of set in stone. It's the way they first learned how to do things and maybe they had one epiphany or two epiphanies in the course of their career, whether it's like, we need to be able to release early and often and it sticks in their head. Mm -hmm. But the idea of like continuously learning and continuously expecting your views to change on how uh, what the right tool for a particular job is, whether we should be using um, cloud technologies for this kind of thing, or we should be using, uh, you know, some build technology for this, or we should be using a command line tool here, all of that stuff. You know they say like great architects are always answer with it depends. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, because in a lot of cases, it does because we're we're not operating on, you know, we're operating on things that have been done before. like we a lot of times we're doing similar work. But each time it's a little different because the context is different. We're dealing with different constraints from our business. We're maybe in a different industry. Maybe it was what we need to do was implemented in at Netflix. But we're over at Spotify, and we need to, you know, we're not streaming video; we're streaming audio, so it's different, you know. And so, uh, in a lot of cases, like because like our our like software is is different every time you you take on a problem and try to solve it with software, it is a little bit different than the medical profession mm-hmm. because human beings, while they do experience like different ail- ailments and illnesses. They're still human beings. Like, there's right. a book you can write. There isn't a book you can write on a software, <laughs> you know? Right, right, uh, right. So it's kind of like more abstract and nebulous in a lot of ways. Well, but,
0: you know, this is something I, I wanted to actually talk about after, like, the next part of this was that, you know, it's a, it's a loser. The, the difference between a professional and an amateur, what is the difference between a professional and an amateur? Or an amateur and an expert, right? Yeah. It's probably just more experience, more time, mm-hmm. more practice, more uh, rigor as well. One of the well. things, yeah. r- more rigor, right, right. And, but but here's the thing, though: as you progress through your career, you realize that that rigor is needed, yeah, and that rigor is point. important, right? And so I think that's the sort of silver lining of this. And This was something like somebody posted as a comment on here was that. Um, and he posted a quote by this guy Niels Bohr and I I didn't know who this was I had to go look this up before before the show but he's a, a a physicist I think uh Danish European I'm not sure where anyway um the quote was an expert's a person who has made all of the mistakes that can be made in a very narrow field mm-hmm. so that expert started out as an amateur at some point yeah and and so you know the thing is that like all these these errors that we're talking about these forced unforced errors these errors that we've made are not bad in and of themselves if we are learning from them like i said if we next time you know we we do the tests or next time we talk to the users or next time we do this eventually we'll stop making these same errors hopefully if we if we learn from them and then you know we move on to becoming that you know professional where maybe we are still googling stuff because you know software stuff changes so often you probably that will never go away no matter how good you get at it but you know the the simple things the the testing the making sure your code is 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 good before you do a code review or Mm -hmm. making sure you um you know talk to users before you start designing or making sure you do your research and understand the context and the problem before you start cranking out wireframes or something um I think that's the difference is is learning from those mistakes, and eventually, all those people who made those mistakes should, in theory, learn from them, um, and get better. Right? Uh, you also have the advantage of reading from or, or learning from other people's mistakes, so that you hopefully don't make the same mistakes yourself. Uh, and so, find the books. I'm sure there's stuff that uh, for software engineering that talk about these things, you know, so that eventually you can become that expert. Because, uh, uh, you know, to me, that's really the only difference is that between a professional and an expert is just time and the amount of effort they put in. It's funny,
1: too. You know, you think about, like, those fields we talked about before, more professional fields that have been around for a long time, like medicine.
0: They go through um, some type of certification. I mean, you have to have a license. You have to do all these things that you've taken tests. You've gone through some process to get that license. You know, I, I know, like, when we talked to Bob Martin, yep. Uncle Bob, He was he's very much opposed to certifications. And I understand that at a certain level it becomes a profit center for people who just want to charge people thousands of dollars for some certification. Um, and maybe the issue is with the profit more than the actual certification. I don't know what, Bob, what uh, Uncle Bob's main issue. We didn't really get to talk to him about it that much. And I go back and I think about our, our conversation with Goico where you know humans versus computers and all these bugs can affect your life in a very real way, right? I mean, we saw, again, the 737 Max. The software caused two planes to crash. It could have caused a lot more. Um, you know, I don't know that a certification would have solved this, but to me, a certification requiring people to get certificated, certificated, certified, 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 <laughs> certificated, uh, requiring people to get those certifications that go you know, talk about testing and all these other things, um, you know, would, would potentially solve some of those issues. Um, you know, maybe, I don't know. Maybe that's just the larger debate to have, but it's an interesting thing to think about. Absolutely, man. You know, um,
1: after talking to you about this, thinking about the pro- the process of moving from an amateur to a professional, the path, it makes me think of, you know, other professions that, you know, have more of a, uh, a standard way to get from A to B, whether it's a set of certifications or whatever. Um, in the medical profession, what do they call what doctors do? Practice. That's a continuously changing world. They're constantly mm-hmm. learning new things. There's always new information to be added to your skill set to make you an even more effective doctor or surgeon or whatever. If you keep using the tools and techniques from 10 years ago, you're going to be you know, outpaced and even potentially like out of a job. And it yeah. makes me think of what causes failures in systems. And, I, and I, you know, thinking of the term we use for what doctors do, practice, I think it's hubris. I think it's overconfidence in in the sense that, like, if you consider yourself done with learning something in a, in an industry, mm, you're just yeah. setting yourself up for a sequence of terrible events. And I feel like in our industry, sometimes people... Get to that state where they're interested in knowing more, but they're comfortable with implementing what they've already, what they already know, you know? Okay. Without it,
0: without wanting to learn more to make sure that it is actually correct.
1: You know, and and the reasons behind that are also, I believe, hubris and overconfidence that Mm -hmm. maybe, you know, some business goal is going to save us a ton of money without Any, you know, uh, any real evidence toward it, it's just a lot of times based off of the ego of some, you know, CIO. Sometimes it's based off some data and some, you know, targets we want to hit in the business. But it's like it's almost like a trickle down effect of overconfidence, you know, Mm -hmm. because that comes down to the team. And then they're forced to rush toward a goal that was Mm -hmm. based and built off of this overconfidence or hubris or whatever.
0: Yeah, but yeah, I think that's kind of um, you know, something to think about too. Like people who become principal or whatever, they they you know, senior staff, principal director, they get to this point where they just feel like maybe they know everything and they need they don't feel the need to go and continue learning, you know, continuous improvement and things like that. And I think that's what sets like leaders apart that are really good leaders versus the ones who just got there because they it was their turn. Um, they were up next for the promotion versus someone who actually earned it it's those leaders that are like always realize that have that socratic ignorance that there's always more to understand there's always more to investigate there's yeah. always more to explore the, t- the tough
1: thing about our industry too is that a lot of times we have to make decisions we got to make them even mm-hmm. with, though we know we don't have the all of the information out there you know i know we worked on a product together a project together a contract project where it was really difficult for me to make a decision on the path forward. Mm -hmm. But I got to a place where I tried out a few different things and I realized that like none of them are perfect but this one the one we chose had the best chance of us being able to get what we needed to get out of it and it did. It ended up doing that but I had to evaluate the other scenarios and a lot of times we don't take that time to do that evaluation of like all the different options to solve a problem because there is no standard, you have to
0: do that evaluation. Yeah. Well, that's also where I think things like, where we talked with Artie with the learning release, yeah, yeah, comes yeah. into play Perfect. as well, right? I mean, like you treat it as a an experiment, you make everyone understand and you change the context around this new thing and it is now an experiment and we are expecting either a pass or a fail or a success or a failure and it's not a failure even though it didn't meet whatever goal we had set out because we are now learning something so that we can then apply that and move forward with more knowledge so that the next decision is more informed Yeah, dude. and is more likely to be the correct one. Um, and I think that's where, you know um, most teams kind of that sort of hubris you're talking about, like just, we, we know what we're doing. We're going to go and build this thing um, without ever stopping to validate it. Right. To make sure that it is what the users want. Um, and that's a failure. Right. From like, that's kind of like a product to me, I would almost consider like a product management, senior level managerial director type failure. Right. That's a that's those unforced errors. Right. Um, And then there's the more that's the strategic unforced errors, I guess. And then you've got the tactical unforced errors, which would be like, you know, the things that they talk about in this blog, which are like, you know, not doing your unit tests, Um, the more specific kind of things like that, uh, introducing bugs when you didn't have to introduce bugs. You know, um, same with UX, like not, you know, not doing simple things like talking to users or interviews or or, or research or whatever. Again, that's kind of a tactical uh, failure. Um, so, you know, that's where I think like in all in general, like even these people who have gotten there, those, those leaders, they're still capable of making these uh, unforced errors. Absolutely. You know, and this is not something that I think what I guess what I'm trying to stress is that this is not something that is for the the lower level uh, kind of tactical execution roles like software engineer. Um, this can also apply at a higher level to those people who quote unquote you know should know what they're doing, uh, or should know the market, or should know their product, or should know their users, but but tend to just make assumptions and you know not not uh, have it not work out.
1: Yeah, you know it's funny too how unforced errors in a loser's game often have cascading effects and that's not Mm, illustrated in the tennis example Mm -hmm. but a lot of unforced errors in the software world you know let's say you just have succumbed to the planning fallacy for example Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. you
1: know um, where you uh, take estimates based off it's almost like uh, the gambler's Gamblers' fallacy too, like the uh, that you think that your your chance of winning improves if the more you lose, kind of thing. Uh, right, right, right. Uh, well, and it's,
0: it's been yeah. red the last two hundred times. Yeah, it's, it's gotta, gotta be gotta green, turn next. green eventually, you know. <laughs> uh,
1: even though you know it does, does never does. Yeah. Um, at least not for me. Very low um, odds. But it's funny because it's the same way in other fields too. Um, if you don't wash your hands and you go work on someone. And you pass something to them, they could then pass it to someone else. They could pass it to someone mm-hmm. else some kind of infection. Um, I can't say we know anything about that from yeah. recent events, but that's exactly what all our all world is dealing with right now—a cascading event of an unforced error. You know, yep. uh, depending on who you ask.
0: Well, that's um, where yeah. This is kind of what I'm thinking, and when you said that, it made me think of like this scenario, which I've seen a million times, where somebody will come to a product manager and say, I have to get this estimated. We need to have a budget set um, by tomorrow. Get the team together and estimate it. And the product manager, the designer, the, the, the team, the development team has absolutely no idea of the context. They don't understand the problem. And so they're going to estimate based on some random crap that they just came up with in the last few hours. Yeah. Maybe estimating the completely wrong feature, <laughs> right? So, so that's part. That's an unforced error from the management side. Right. But then even then, those people are going to be rushing to build. They're going to be rushing to release. They're going to be rushing because they have some deadline to meet. They're not going to do the test like they're supposed to. They're going to skip a step. They're not going to validate with a the user. They're not going to do some research. They're going to just design based on assumption. You know, They're going to skip all those unit tests we talked about. They might skip QA just to rush and push it to dev, push it to production, because they had a, a deadline to meet, and again, all of those are unforced errors that you could have easily taken the time, understood the context, said, "Wait a minute, do we really need the? What? what what's the? What's the harm in this thing getting released a quarter later, right? Three months down the road, as opposed to next next quarter? What, what difference does it really make in the grand scheme of things? Who's who's hurt here? Um, and is are we really building the best thing for our end users? Right? Because at the end of the day." You know, developers should care about the end user. I mean, there's no point in building software if, if it's not going to add value to that end user, and that includes introducing bugs, slow load time, insecure applications, you know, things that, that, that don't run on different devices that they wanted to, things like that. Um, all of that, you know, comes down to, is this adding value for the end user? And all of those things could easily build up to a snowball of a user finding this thing completely useless. Just because somebody rushed. Yeah man. well put.
1: You know the, the thing that happens though, is then you get asked, all right, well what would you do? How would you fix it? And you know what I would say? I would say, what are we missing? What is what is not here that's causing all this to happen. Mm-hmm. The, the problem is is, is I see and a lot of teams that have a lot of problems, consistency and rigor are what's missing. Rigor following the same steps each time because I think that when you introduce rigor, you introduce the idea of restraint Mm -hmm. and restraint, like the brake in a car, is the most powerful thing you have because if you don't have it, every decision you make will be based off of your limited background and primal Mm -hmm. instinct. I was in a meeting and I hope nobody from that meeting is on this call. It's <laughs> uh, on this call. It's just you and me. Is it's on this call. Look at me. Who's I'm, listening? I'm, yeah. Uh, if you're listening, show. I think you're great. Whoever it is that was there, I think you're great. Because <laughs> I do. I genuinely respect and um, empathize a lot of times with the folks on my team because a lot of times their work is the, um, you know, response to an unforced error at a higher mm-hmm. level, you know. So anyway, I was in a meeting and they said, "We have to do an estimate. I don't want an optimistic estimate because then, you know, we'll be we'll be lying, and we'll, be, you know, obviously. But I also, don't want a conservative estimate because then we'll go out too far. So what <laughs> I
0: need is a realistic estimate. So then, give me the time to investigate everything. <laughs> so it's it's <laughs> but, it's, but so, I need it in an hour, Derek. <laughs> so
1: so but that 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 came from a primal instinct of mm-hmm. we can't lie." Because that's immoral. Mm -hmm. And we can't tell our bosses it's going to go past their imposed timeline. So Mm -hmm. we need you to tell us it's not going to go past that timeline, but Mm -hmm. the absolute last date before they'll get upset.
0: Yeah. Well, and, you know, so here's the thing, though, dude, like you're talking about rigor, that rigor shouldn't just apply to the team doing the execution, that rigor should also apply to the team doing the strategy, the planning, the budgets, the roadmaps, yeah, everything up the line. Right. right and on. so if there was rigor in place, it should be what minimum things do we need to get an estimate? Right. And that should that at that point, it should never come to I need a estimate in an hour. Because right. clearly that will not get you an accurate estimate. absolutely man. right So that rigor goes all the way up the chain. So the rigor isn't and again, this is where I think like the difference between strategic and tactical, but you know the tactical rigor is the you know how we push things to code, how we do code reviews, how we do unit tests, things like that. The strategic r- uh, uh, rigor is, you know, what is the process that we need to go to to actually understand the requirements? What is the the, the process that we need to go to to actually start to get money for these things, right? We probably need some estimate to get some amount of money, right? We can't just ask for a million dollars. It's just like, you know, we think it's going to take X amount of developers, X amount of time, therefore we need X amount of money, Um, you know? And so all of that stuff to me is where the rigor, you know, would solve some of these problems. Um, And I think we did a really great job of that in our previous job we worked on a few years back where we did have that in place and we did go through these things and we didn't just make up numbers. We actually went to the shop and we actually observed the users and we understood what the problem was so that we were actually estimating the right thing from the beginning. And then when we did, we actually took the time, we reviewed those problems. You know, we didn't spend the time designing high-fidelity wireframes. It wasn't like Waterfall, but we understood at a high level what the feature might include. It will probably be this thing. It'll probably be a way for a user to do this. And so how we designed that could have been any number of ways, but we, we, we got with the developers and we, they were included with that. And, and all that stuff was part of that rigor. We went through a process. And it took time. It wasn't something where just like somebody could come and say, I need you to estimate this next two years of work in the next hour. And please make sure you're not lying, but also don't give me too conservative of an effort. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, so it's just ridiculous that anybody could expect that. And then also, too, the rigor, though, at the end is like being held accountable. That's the other piece of this. Mm-hmm. It's it's not just putting in place some guardrails to make sure something doesn't fail, but it's holding people accountable so that if that thing does go two months over budget, or I I said it would take, I don't know, two quarters and it took us a year, that isn't the developer's fault. That isn't the developer's fault. There could certainly be problems that the developer could have solved that might have made it take less time. But that estimate was inherently flawed from the beginning. And it was flawed because someone encourage somebody to give oh, I don't want a fake estimate, I don't want too conservative I don't want too blah blah blah, blah you know whatever um, that person should be held accountable but in my experience they never are those are the ones at the very top who were never held accountable it's always somebody else's fault well we didn't have enough people or we didn't do that or the developers did this or the developers didn't do this or the UX team took too long for blah 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 And and those managers are never held accountable from my experience never and they do it constantly and they do it to multiple teams and this happens at you know, every company I've ever worked for, essentially. So, I think that's where the rigor comes into place is just holding people accountable. You know, and that goes up and down the line. Um, and often, that's never the case.
1: You know, it's funny too. Along that same line, I've been actually thinking a lot about keeping receipts along the way. Yeah, but oh, not yeah. necessarily like not necessarily like you did this, you did this, you did this. But the decisions that are made, mm-hmm. who was Who was the decider in those decisions? Just tracking it. This person made this decision. I I don't want to blame anybody for anything. I don't want to blame anyone for anything. But I'd love to see the trail of decision-making that led us
0: to this point so that we can get better. That's it. Yep. Absolutely, dude. I I love that idea. So that's that's something that, you know, in this article, he gives very tactical solutions. You know, make sure you do your unit test. Make sure you do this stuff. But I think like at, at, a, at a higher level than that, it, it is that exact thing you're talking about. The, I have it in writing that someone asked me to do this estimate. I have it in writing that I said, this is not, I am not confident about this estimate. And here is why. You brought it to me too late. We didn't have enough time. We didn't get to do our due diligence. I'm making assumptions about this. I'm making assumptions about that. These are the risks. It's in writing. It is in writing. So that later when someone comes back, well, how come this thing went six months over budget? Well, I told you that we had this problem. This thing was the case. You know, now I would also say it's partly on us to constantly bring this up. Like, I, I don't, I'm not confident about this. I don't think this thing's going to work. You know, not just when you submit that estimate, but even when you start the work. You know, like we said we were going to have this done by six months, but I, I you know, if we're a month in, I'm not confident we're going to be there in five months. I'm not confident we're going to be there in four months instead of waiting until the day before and say, well, you know, I knew it wasn't going to work. So I think that's part of it as well, is on the people doing the tactical execution to also be very aware of the requirements, what was there, who made those decisions, why those decisions were made, and then constantly just speaking your mind and not being afraid of the consequences. And then also, too, I mean, this comes down to the culture of the team, Right. A lot of people will never do that because they're scared of being fired or they're scared of being punished. Um, and so they don't say anything. <laughs> and then and then you get to the point where the executive in, in the corner office was, well, nobody ever told me about this problem. Like we, right, you know, we talked to right. Artie that, that uh, the the guy comes in and he's like, no, that's not a problem. Everyone's like, yeah, that's our biggest problem. Um, that person has no idea because everybody beneath them was scared to speak up. And, you know, I guess this is me and maybe I'm just privileged to not – have to worry about this but for me if if i was in that scenario i would just find a new job it's not if if i get fired that's fine it's not my that's not the job i wanted right it's not the job for me Um, not everybody can make that you know decision so therefore people tend to to be afraid of of speaking up but um i guess that's me i don't know i I am lucky to have enough money to not need a job i guess (laughs) for a few months while i look for a new one um so anyway i don't know i think that's it i think the rigor like you said is is critical
1: you know, you brought up culture, and I've been reading this book called Accelerate, uh by the folks who uh, some of the folks who also wrote the book Lean Enterprise. Talks about, you know, culture and organizations and also some ways to deal with uh how to identify high-performing teams. And they identify different cultures as as three different groups. One is generative, one is bureaucratic, and one is pathological. And when you have a culture of blame and fear, you have a culture of uh, always trying to make the big boss happy without any you know, any sense of why it's valuable to the company, all this kind of stuff is more toward the pathological end than the generative end where everyone understands what they're doing in the mission and accepts the fact that sometimes we make mistakes. And sometimes we make mistakes, we're okay with it, and we're going to admit it and we're going to move on and we're going to try to get better. And no one is going to be blamed because we're in this together. And right. that is so difficult to imbune in, into a
0: team that is so pathological sometimes, you know? Yeah, it absolutely is. And and, and the interesting thing is like that kind of thing happens over time. Yeah, right? Teams don't start off that way. Nobody wants to be that way. Um, nobody says, this is the kind of team I'm going to create, right? And, and I, I think a lot about... You know, our conversation with Brittany a couple episodes ago, um, we, you know, we we had that psychological safety net, I guess you would call it, to speak up and to say these things. And I think that's partly why we had such a great team. And it's no surprise to me that we were so effective and we were able to deliver on time, mm. you know, consistently. Um, we were able to give really great estimates because we were given the time to make those estimates correct, and, and all of that, I think, plays into all of this is the idea of psychological safety, um, you know, and and um, again, I think that not creating that environment is, again, an unforced error by the management team, by the right. leadership team, because it is something that you could not easily, but it is something that you could absolutely cultivate a culture of that as opposed to fostering a culture of fear um, and, you know, mistrust or or whatever. And Brittany
1: kind of taught us that there's a difference between that inorganic and organic culture building, that the mm-hmm. inorganic culture building is necessary for management to take action and put put basically the storefronts in place, the roads in place, the light posts, to make sure that you you have the ability to fill those storefronts with cool ideas and meetings and, and hackathons and whatever makes the team yeah. better. Um, right. But the, if the inorganic stuff isn't there and it's just the Wild West with old, you know, uh, broken down buildings on the side of Route 66, which is, you know, kind of cool. But at the same time, you don't want to be living there.
0: You know Makes I mean? for a great photo op. It does. But you don't want to stay there. You don't wanna you there. want to stay You want to take a picture, drive on through. You got it. So, yeah, I I think that's the biggest thing, too. That that was my biggest takeaway from this was, you know, this idea of the loser's game to me. What I got out of it was just like the tactical things that you you could do. But I think there's a huge part of this that is the the leadership's responsibility to also make sure that they are not making unforced errors, strategic decisions when they shouldn't be or without the the proper uh, information and things like that. So really good point. I dig it, man. Winners versus losers, professionals versus amateurs, amateurs, as they Cheers. say in some parts of the world. Um, I think it's a good it's a good thing to to check out. So we'll we'll post this blog post, uh, with the show notes. So read it, please do. Um and let us know what you think. I'd love to hear from from all you all you uh all you listeners out there. Right on, man. Anything else before we kick it? Nothing from me, man. I um I, I like this topic a lot. I feel like this is something like, again, it's just everything comes back to like communication and relationships and all those things. Um, you know, the, a lot of these unforced errors to me just come back to the same themes that we keep talking about over and over and over again, um, you know, and, and I think it's just important to, to uh, learn from your mistakes and make, make it better next time.
1: Right on. We got to write one of those books that you get to put a, uh, an animal on
0: someday. I want to do that. I have no idea what I would write about, though. Maybe we could write about relationships or something. What would your animal be, Derek? A duck. A duck. I like it. You know, we talked to Tom Grever, who had one of those O'Reilly books, and he said he didn't get to make the decision. <laughs> they had a panel that that decided for him. To the use animal the panel. It's yeah. So silly. So you know, you know, I'm going to be a duck. I like that. I like it. A duck, but a very specific duck. It's, it's an honorable
1: animal, animal, you know.
0: An honorable animal. That's true, oh. man. They also taste good. Mm-hmm. You know. They do, and they're they're yummy. Mm-hmm. All right, so uh, that's all I've got for today, Derek. It was good to finally have a little boy talk again, man. Um, Love to see you. We've got a few episodes lined up with some guests that I'm really excited about. Um, we're gonna have Amy Miller, my lovely wife, who's a product manager. We're gonna close out the Get Hired series finally. Uh, we need to find some time. She's very busy. We're very busy, um, and it's hard to do a, an episode with her, but we're going to talk about uh, closing out the Get Hired series where we talk about uh, you know what makes a really great uh, relationship and, and what makes a uh, a successful uh, software developer, UX designer, how to work with product managers and your entire team, and it's going to be a good conversation. So peep that. Ooh. That's all I got. Alright, so check us out on RetroTimePodcast.com uh, Like and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts RetroTimePodcast.com slash stickers and like I said, check out RetroTimePodcast.com slash reviews peep all those review jams uh, and if you want your own review jam you know what to do, leave a 5 star review let us know, Derek will write you a song I'll take care of you and you'll win a Grammy you know Alright yeah, right, guys, well until next time we'll see you. Take it easy. What would your animal be, Derek?
1: A duck.